welcome to the Experto Credo Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Silverberg, Volume 106, Online Editor of the Minnesota Law Review. And today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Professors Daly and Nijang to speak about their piece along with Professor Anna Allstott, Psychological Parenthood. Professors, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having us. So to begin, I always like to ask about what the impetus for the piece is. And so I'm curious, you know, what brought you to write this piece and what kinds of what kinds of topics are you building on in your article? Well, um, I'll start. I, I think this was an kind of an interesting confluence of interests. We came together around some work being done at the Yale Child Study Center with um, clinicians and researchers uh, working with children, um, working on developmental issues relating to children. And the three of us uh, kind of um, have overlapping interests coming from different um, perspectives, different backgrounds in our research and writing. Um, mine uh, is family law, and I began my career teaching and writing in the area of family law and got very interested in the intersection of law and developmental psychology in particular. Um, and that sort of brought me to an interest in uh, psychological parenthood um, and the kinds of issues that we talk about in this paper. I think Doug and Ann kind of arrived at the same place from different perspectives. Doug, I, would you like to you know, give your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, so I had been working a lot on questions of parental recognition. So while while Anne was a bit more focused on the interest of the child, I was focused on questions of when the law treats someone as a parent of a particular child, um, and had been pressing essentially the concept of psychological parenthood um, in law, so that the law would treat people as parents when they are actually parenting uh, a child as opposed to simply because they're a genetic parent or uh, they gave birth to a child or they're an intended parent. And uh, Professor Altsat had been um, working on questions of social welfare and public policy um, to support the parent-child relationship. Um, but really, the, I mean, a, a lot of the article is framed around insights from developmental science, and that as Professor Jelly said, came from our work with colleagues at the Yale Child Study Center. Um, and I think it, it's important to sort of recognize the tradition that we were working in. So the, the 1970s witnessed one of the most important collaborations between law professors and uh, child development researchers uh, and psychoanalysts uh, when uh, colleagues from the Yale Child Study Center and the Yale Law School and the um, worked on what came to be called Beyond the Best Interest of a Child, the Child, a series of important books that was trying to move towards a more child-centered approach um, and was using insights from child development. And we were very self-consciously building on that and working with folks at the Yale Child Study Center who had worked with those original um, collaborators, um, but also were writing at a time where there were important commitments to equality and inclusion 
that animated our work in a way that weren't as central to the work that our predecessors had done. Yeah, and I think uh, bringing up the Goldstein, Freud, and Solnit work is important because what they what they were really the first to point out was that the law was very focused and continues to be very focused on parental interests and needs, and uh, that was what they they were interested in moving family law, in particular the law of child placement, child custody away from an approach that said, well, children are sort of, you know, furthering parental interests in rearing kids, which is an important interest, but uh, the law at that point really ignored children's interests, you know, what might be best for, for children. And uh, it's that that we really are inspired by. Um, the idea that when you look at the welfare of the child, it's really the psychological bonds rather than uh, legal interests or parental rights that defines what's um, most important. And so, so we're inspired by their work. As Doug says, there were limitations. They uh, were somewhat rigid in their understanding of the family. They didn't take into account broader values of equality, as Doug was saying. So that's, that's our challenge, is to um, develop and we hope we've achieved that, develop a theory of the law's recognition of and support for the psychological parent relationship without falling into some of the same problems that, that, they, that you can find in their work. I think it is quite the challenge. Uh, what, what I took from the work is that this is a fundamental reconceptualization of where the child is in our system of dealing with children moving from almost the child is the creature of the parents, the Justice McReynolds standard from now almost a little more than 100 years ago to entirely different system of looking at the world from the child's eyes almost, which that's a massive project. And I, I think you accomplished it, but I would love to know a little bit more about what that reconceptualization means in your minds. So I guess I'll, I'll start by... Uh, and I actually look to Anne as sort of a beacon of this perspective in the law and has been doing a lot of theorizing on child-centered family law. I think it's sometimes in the area where I work, parentage, um, people tend to have a, an assumption that it is parent-centered um, because the question is whether a particular person has the legal status of parent. And what I've tried to do is push towards uh, an understanding of parentage that's more child-centered by focusing on uh, recognition of the relationship that the child has with someone who's their parent, regardless of whether that person is a biological parent or even a legal parent, um, and that the law should actually track the parent-child relationship. And so, um, in the paper, in the article, we try to elaborate that in the section on parentage um, by um, not arguing for a wholesale overturning of what our parentage frameworks look like, but instead um, offering a, a concept that can provide a comprehensive approach to parentage that will lead to some important changes 
but also provides different justifications for some of our existing laws. So, for instance, we don't say biological parents shouldn't be treated as legal parents. Instead, um, we say biological parents ordinarily should be treated as legal parents, but it's not because there is something uh, special about the biological tie, but instead because people act on the fact that they're a biological parent and ordinarily form a parent-child relationship. Um, but there are going to be a lot of circumstances in which we wouldn't treat a biological uh, parent as a parent. And that includes not just situations in which the person was a sperm donor or an egg donor, um, but situations in which someone else has been functioning as the parent of that child. So there are too many cases out there in which um, an, another person is parenting a child, is the primary caregiver of that child, and then the biological parent swoops in. And in some of these cases, it's after four years, five years, six years, 10 years, 14 years, and a court just shifts custody to the biological parent because they're a biological parent and a legal parent. And we are urging an approach that focuses on that child. And that, from that child's perspective, that biological parent is not their psychological parent. Their psychological parent is the person who has been parenting them. And we want an approach that actually treats that person as a parent and protect that relationship because doing so protects the child's interest. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, you do see in the legal writing, the idea that, you know, biological parents, it does serve children's interests because they're the ones most likely to, to care for children. And, and we, we agree with that. Um, but the transformational part of this paper, I think, has to do with something that you were getting at, Lee, which is we're looking, we're coming at these issues, we're asking legal decision makers and lawmakers to come at these legal issues from the perspective of the child. And that's, I think, what Goldstein, Freud, and Solnit did. They asked, you know, in a way, they were asking, who is the parent from the child's perspective? And that's what we're doing in this paper. I mean, as Doug was saying, it's it's not who has sort of ownership rights in the child or who does biology identifies the child, but who is the child, you know, experience as their parents. And so that's, um, there's something quite, I think there is something transformational about it. We don't, we, uh, we don't cover the whole realm of law in this paper. We take really two doctrinal, we, we have two, two kind of sections. One is a section that's about uh, kind of um, redistributive. Like we're asking, you know, we sort of ask the question, how would um, resources in society be redistributed given, uh, given uh, an emphasis on protecting the psychological parent relationship? But we also have a protective dimension to this principle, which is, um, our parentage and custody sections, which look at doctrine, you know, how to, how should the law grapple with uh, sort of children's relationship to their parents when um, issues come up and, you know, the importance of protecting the psychological parent relationship, but we don't cover every possible issue. It's an invitation really uh, to others um, to start, you know, to really explore what it would mean to, 
make the psychological parent relationship the primary interest. Um, so. Well, I certainly hope that not only people, professors, take up that, uh, that gauntlet to write on this topic more, but also we're definitely going to talk about some of the things you all mentioned. I really want to start with setting up the scheme. So how would you describe what psychological parenting and parenthood is, and how would you describe it in contrast to the best interest standard that I think everyone that's seen family law knows and maybe loves or doesn't love? Uh, so I'll take a stab and then I'll let yeah. uh, and refine what I have to say. Um, <laughs> so from our perspective, the psychological parent-child relationship is the relationship that the child has with the person who is providing the child with consistent day-to-day care, emotional support. Um, it's the person that the child turns to for safety and security. Um, and from the child's perspective, um, the status of that person in our legal system is not relevant. Uh, what's relevant is, is that person the person the child can depend on for care and safety and security? Um, and is that person providing that care and nurturance in a consistent fashion? Um, and that's the relationship that the science tells us is so critical to a child's development and a whole uh, range of consequences uh, flow from having what the researchers call a secure attachment um, to this parental figure. Um, and so for us, um, that's a pretty clear guideline or principle around which to build law reform. Um, and in contrast to the best interest of the child standard, which as scholars and activists has, have argued for decades, is indeterminate. It's something that uh, decision makers can import their own values into. Um, what I think is best for a child might be different than what you think is best for a child. Um, and it allows a range of considerations to enter into the analysis that we think are not targeted primarily at what is required for this decision to be the best decision for this child. And that's focusing on and prioritizing and protecting that psychological uh, parent-child relationship. And so um, uh, even if some people would agree with us that prioritizing the psychological parent relationship is in the best interest of the child, um, we're trying to shift away from a standard that allows people to reach vastly different decisions across similar cases because of different values and um, ideas about children's interests when we know that what is important for the child, especially at these early stages, is protecting and promoting this psychological parent relationship. Yeah, nothing to refine there, Doug. That was, you know, <laughs> a really nice summary of the of the psychological parent principle. I mean, it's it's a kind of it's a transparent principle. It's clear. It uh, reflects the developmental research, um, and in its transparency and its predictability um, and its sort of scientific grounding, it 
I think serves the values that we share and the values being, um, as we identify them in the paper, values of democracy, equality, and inclusion. And those values do come in to modify the application of the psychological parent principle. Um, in some cases, we might be, you know, we're, we're uh, sensitive to issues surrounding um, LGBTQ families or families of color or gender inequality issues. Um, it, it's, it is, I mean, despite our emphasis on it being a uh, scientific principle or rooted in scientific principles, it's also normative. You know, it, it, it reflects what we think of as, you know, what's best for the child in a broader sense as well. So, um, so yeah, so that's sort of our, the, the core of this paper. So very quickly, I actually think that the fact that you all acknowledge the normativity of the theory that you're proposing is an enormous boon to its strength. One of the things that I've argued with the judges that I've worked with, some of whom are very strong child advocates and others not as much, is that the best interest standard is pretty much hollow, as you all essentially argue in this piece. It is a husk, and judges get to do with it what they want to associate the end results the way they want them to be sometimes. And other times it'll look different. So similar cases, like you said, will look very disparate. And I'm curious, your inclusion of values in the paper about the kinds of things that really build up this theory normatively, did you come to that as a way of getting away from this hollowness of the best interest standard? Or was it something that flows more from the psychological research and the, I would say, appended philosophy that goes with it? I think it really flows from us being lawyers. Um, that we're, we're very aware of law's normative strains and aspirations. And I think um, in particular, Anne has done a lot of work around the place of the family in a democratic polity and the need for the state to provide resources, um, sort of the affirmative obligation of the state to provide resources to support families. And so the, I mean, in my work too, I emphasize the fact that children are citizens as well, and that there we we do have a conception of their place in the democratic state, and it's one in which the democratic state has certain obligations to children. They will, you know, children, you know, in our view, the psychological the relationship between a parent and child, psychological parent and child, is crucial not only to the welfare of the child, but also to the well-being of the, of the polity. And so this is a, it's a, at its edges, it's a political theory as much as it is a doctrinal theory um, or a kind of social policy endeavor. Um, I think that's how we, we view it. And so we see the, the science as being rooted in or you know, kind of infused by the value, our legal values, our legal, you know, as we take them, um, as we describe them in the paper, democracy, equality, and inclusion. The, the only thing I'll just know on top of that is that, you know, the science purports to be neutral and objective, um, but, but observable across the science are the 
assumptions and biases of researchers. And um, it was important for us to not let the limitations of the scientific literature um, shape our legal interventions. And so, I mean, I think early in the paper, we note that the National Academies described the primary caregiver as mostly the biological mother. Um, and that descriptively might be an accurate account, but if that were to animate an intervention in law, would have all sorts of exclusionary effects that we would find problematic. Um, and so it was important for us to um, mediate the science through a normative framework that represented the commitments that we think the legal system ought to have. Jumping off that point, I think that one of the um, one of the ways that this article really nicely, I would say, uh, depicts the difference that this conception of law makes is your contrasting between Allison D. and Brooke S. B. Could you walk us through a little bit about those two cases and what the contrast between how the courts came out and both of them really show about where the law is going? Yeah. So, um, so Allison D. was a it was the first. Um, decision by a state high court on um, a lesbian parenting uh, conflict in which uh, you have a same-sex couple who has a child together with donor sperm. They raise the child together. They break up. And the biological mother is able to say, because of laws around parentage, that the non-biological mother, her partner for many years and her co-parent, is not a legal parent of the child. And in that case, the non-biological mother went to court and sought custody of the child, uh, visitation or custody as a parent. And the uh, New York Court of Appeals, which is the, the state Supreme Court, the high court of New York, um, said, you're not a parent. You're a legal stranger to this child um, because a parent is a biological parent or an adoptive parent. Um, never mind that at that point, she could not... Uh, adopt the child under New York law. Um, but that decision remained the law in the state of New York for 25 years um, and was affirmed actually by that same court in 2010. Um, and it had a, a really heartbreaking impact on a lot of children in New York state who were being raised by someone who was not a biological parent and hadn't adopted them. Um, and then eventually a similar case arose um, in which the couple had a child together with donor sperm and raised the child together and broke up and continued to co-parent. And then eventually the biological mother said, you're not a parent of this child. She had moved on to a new relationship and uh, ended the child's contact with the non-biological mother. And the family court in that case said, I am bound by Allison D. It is heartbreaking to me, but I'm bound by Allison D. And there's not a parent-child relationship there. And the court talked about the way in which the child saw a picture of his non-biological mother um, and was crying, saying, that's my mother. Um, and fortunately, what the trial court did that a lot of other courts confronted with these cases have not done is appoint an attorney to represent the interest of the child in that case. The other uh, the, the parties were pro se, but there was an attorney representing the interest of the child, and that attorney appealed the trial court's ruling and eventually went to the high court in New York, which in a 
really groundbreaking decision in 2016 that Allison D is not good law and overturned it um, and said that a system designed around biological parenthood is not sustainable in a world in which same-sex couples are raising children and deserve equal respect. And it said the uh, it reasoned in ways that suggested that an approach that included same-sex couples was also a child-centered approach um, because too many children had lost their parents because of that Allison G. ruling. And so to really protect children in the state of New York, um, the legal system needed to treat someone as a parent um, regardless of whether they were a biological parent, were married to the biological parent, or had adopted the child. And that decision, I mean, there's been a, several cases decided now under Brooke SC uh, in New York, and just so many children have had their relationships with their psychological parents protected because um, the court ruled in a way that both promoted equality and promoted the interests of children. And I think that case um, really, you know, it it illuminates the fact that our our work here is rooted in changes that are happening on the ground in courts. Um, you know, it. I mean, I said earlier that it's transformational, but it's also not. It's also happening um, in small ways. And part of part of what we're attempting to do here is to pull those. That those kind of disparate developments that are happening um, in courts and uh, in legislatures, especially around de facto parenthood um, together, and to give them a kind of strong theoretical grounding and empirical grounding. So, Why do you all think that it's taken this long to get to uh, where we're at now? So one of the things that really struck me was that Allison D was the law for uh, two decades and a half. And then when, you know, Brooke SB comes around, finally the New York High Court says, this is not what we can do. But by the time they had done that, non-biological parenthood had become uh, ubiquitous. Many people were doing it. It was common as opposed to where it was with Allison D. Is that really the answer, or is there another reason why it's taken so long to get to a much more equitable and inclusive society? Uh, you know, Doug knows much more, but this is, you know, he has um, really been a pathbreaker in this area. So, but I'll, but I'll, I'll say a few words, which is, um, you know, first of all, the hold that biological parenthood has on us, I think, is, you know, it runs deep. And there have been, Kind of social changes out ahead of the law in this, um, but also I think that there is uh, a strong support for parental rights generally, um, and we see it recently. There's been you know kind of a blossoming of uh, parental rights, uh, strong movement for parental rights in many different areas, um, and I think sometimes not to the benefit of children. And uh, it's because it's often rooted in biology. It's often rooted in, a, you know, keep this state out of our lives and we can protect ourselves by um, saying, well, you know, this is a kind of natural relationship. This is a biological relationship. And so I think it's a kind of, it's a combination of factors, but 
you know, we are the only country in the world right now who, that is not signed on to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which, you know, read in a certain way would protect psychological parents, would protect uh, children's relationship with de facto parents. Um, and we haven't signed on to it in large part because of a strong parental rights lobby that worries that um, these kinds of social changes may follow. So Doug, what are your, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think that's perfectly put. This intersection of biological assumptions about family relationships and strong parental rights have really produced barriers to change. And there's ways in which they present themselves as timeless, as pre-political, but they're not. I mean, there's actually, you know, historical work showing that in the 19th century, judges in the U.S. actually were much more flexible with respect to custody. Um, and, and also, you know, our law for, for most of our history was structured around marriage, not biology. So biological fathers, for instance, of non-marital children were not treated as legal parents. But today, especially, you know, in the age of DNA, we, we see um, decision makers and just ordinary people thinking of genetic or biological parents as, quote, real parents. And, and others are not. And we still have to get people to center the interest of the child and from the child's perspective, um, their real, quote, real parent is the person who is parenting them. Um, and it's not as much as, you know, in, in thinking about why the, the U.S. Um, uh, has taken the position it has on the Convention on the Rights of the Child, certainly political, ideological divisions are important there. But we also see with respect to things like de facto parenthood or having law actually protect psychological parenthood, that this is a problem across political and ideological divides because the intuition that biological parents are special and that they have rights to exclude other people who are parenting is so deeply ingrained. I've been involved, I mean, we were involved in Connecticut where we, we passed the de facto parent statute last year, but now in Massachusetts doing something similar. Um, and uh, there's resistance from lawyers, um, people like bright line rules and biology seems like a bright line. Um, and so it's hard to get people to decide to move to new standards that protect children's relationships because they worry that those standards might be messy um, and we're saying it's, it's more important, the most important thing to do is to protect the child's relationship with their psychological parent. Um, and in fact, in other work um, that I'm doing, we see that judges are, are competent at applying these doctrines in ways that protect children's relationships. Um, and we shouldn't be scared of the doctrines, but people remain scared of them. To to cap this off, and I think that was very well put by both of y'all, what kinds of changes would you all want to see in society generally that might lend themselves to less rigidity in the sense that you're pushing for, a more child-centered focus of the law? You all 
mention some of them, and I know Professor Allstott is the person on this topic, but I am curious if there are any small changes or big changes that you really think would lend themselves to a more equitable society for children. Well, um, I'm doing work right now on what I think is really at the core of a lot of these problems, which is our broad protection for parental rights um, without any deep understanding of uh, children's interests and the way that strong parental rights might interfere with children's interests. So I would like to see a new law of the child that um, elevates children's rights and that uh, sees the world through children's eyes um, in the vast array of areas and that, and that understands and that negotiates the relationship between parents and children First of all, as we're doing in this paper by looking at who really is the parent here, not just kind of ownership or sort of biological ideas about uh, the parent-child relationship, but also gives some room for children to flourish on their own. Um, so that's the direction my work is heading in. Um, I think Anne's, you know, life work has been to uh, think through the public policy and social policy issues, how to how to move us away from a view of of law as protecting negative liberties, how to start to think about state duties towards especially children um, and reconceiving our legal order around a kind of different set of commitments. Um, and Doug, you can wrap it yeah, up. I mean, my own views, you know, obviously is to reform the law of parentage uh, to provide a lot more protection to children's relationships with the people who are doing the hard work of parenting them. But I think, um, you know, we, we opened with um, the paper um, with Professor Alstott's expertise, because I think for all of us, uh, we really want to see a commitment by the state to support parent-child relationships. And, you know, as the parent of a young child right now, I'm, and having gone through the last couple of years, constantly reflecting on the fact that I'm so lucky to have resources and, you know, Yale Law School has a daycare in the building and I can afford it. And all of these things that make uh, parenting um, something that I can do are not available to lots of other and um, we need to have a commitment to protecting children's interests by giving people, giving parents and families the resources, including the financial resources and the educational resources um, to, to provide for their children. And, you know, we had glimmers of hope, um, the um, uh, child tax payments that were being sent um, monthly to families which have disappeared and of course people um, rates of child poverty are going to skyrocket again and we shouldn't be okay with those things and so as much as I'm committed to my, my own work on reform of our legal frameworks around parentage Professor Alstott's um, uh, attention to what our social welfare state should look like seems critically important to me. Thank you so much, professors. And thank you for talking with me about this subject. And of course, on that note, I do hope that many of those things come to pass.
Thank you so much. Thank you. Lee. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for listening to the Experto Crede podcast. All the opinions discussed in this podcast are the opinions solely of the authors and myself and do not reflect their institutions, nor do they reflect the opinions of the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, the Minnesota Law Review, or any other parties.